You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. So guys, uh, thanks for being here. So yeah, we're in uh, Haggai. Uh, as she said, Austin wanted me to call it Hagwa all day, so I will not do that. Um, but uh, yeah, Haggai uh, is a really interesting uh, minor prophet to study through. Um, and again, like we've been saying with all these minor prophets, is they're kind of contemporaries of these major messages from Isaiah and, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and just kind of these these big picture prophecies, and then these minor prophets we get kind of to narrow down and actually see these things play out. So they're really important. So if you want to throw the timeline up there, Jeff, um, as we've kind of seen this trajectory uh, of where we've where we've gone, um, and we did Obadiah last week, uh, Haggai is about 520 BC, and actually the timing is really important. And a lot of the minor prophets don't give us a ton of uh, historical background. They kind of just go right into it, and so you kind of have to find it. And this one, Haggai, like right off the bat, he actually gives us some historical background. So let me, real quick, let me walk through so we could just kind of get into the picture of where we're at, what we're talking about when we hit Haggai. Is it just some random time? What has been going on? So very briefly, God has been speaking to his people. Remember, this is like Old Testament times over and over again, trying to get them to turn back to him as they have turned to other idols or other ways that are not his ways. Some people listen and some people don't, right? And it kind of gets worse and worse and worse. So the impending judgment that they keep hearing about finally comes in the form of Babylon, Okay, this great, big, bad Babylon led by their king, Nebuchadnezzar. Probably heard that name before. Old Neb, he comes in and he just destroys everything, right? Including the great temple of Yahweh. And the people then are then taken and exiled to Babylon and are there for about 70 years. Okay, you guys tracking with me? So this, if you, wanna, if you just want to nerd out, and it's really cool to go read all the history and story, Going into Babylon, this is where the book of Daniel comes in. So this is where they, they, we follow these four young uh, men um, and in Daniel and what it's like to be in Babylonian exile. So you can go read that. It's really interesting. But then something crazy happens. And if you remember the story in Daniel chapter 5, all of Babylon's leaders, it's been, again, a, lot of, a long time, and all of Babylon's leaders are so excited. And they're like, we're the best. And they start getting drunk at this party. And they start drinking. And here's the crazy thing. And you can read this in, in your Bibles, go to Daniel 5. Um, they actually are using goblets that they took and pillaged from the Jerusalem temple, the temple in Jerusalem, to drink to their gods, which are not Yahweh. So it's like a total slap in the face of Israel. It's crazy. So then all of a sudden, if you remember this, either from like Veggie Tales or like actually reading your Bible, but then there's this writing. Yeah, I see that writing on the wall, right? This hand magically appears and writing. It's, it's amazing. Go read it. Daniel 5. Well, it starts writing, basically, their destruction is coming. And overnight, that night, this new power of, of media Persia comes in, uh, led by this King Cyrus, and just conquers Babylon overnight. Just comes in and just conquers everything. Okay, so now the Israelite people who were conquered, taken to Babylon, are now under this new rule over there. So time went on. The people are under this new rule of King Cyrus. And King Cyrus then decrees. He says, hey, I don't see these Israelites as threats. They're kind of foreigners in this land. Let's just send them back to their land 
and help them rebuild. So he gives this decree and says, you guys can go back and start rebuilding your land. And that is where you can read that in Ezra and Nehemiah. You can start reading them coming back and starting to rebuild cities, rebuild the temple, that kind of thing, the life that they had. And they start this kind of lackluster rebuilding project, and they're excited, and then they kind of lose hope, and people are persecuting them as they're doing it. They're yelling insults, stopping their work. So the temple project kind of stops. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a house project. My wife and I love house projects, but you kind of hit snags or like Usually for me, it's when I hit my thumb with the hammer and then it's like, oh, I'm done. Like this, this project's good enough. It'll probably stay in the winter, right? The temple just continues to lie in ruins. They're like, we're done. We're not going to do it. So they've returned from exile with little to nothing. Their land is laid waste. They have no king. And for the first time since Moses and the tabernacle, there is no temple. There's no central place of worship where God's spirit can be. And this, this identity crisis they're having is, is crippling to them, and they don't know what's next. This now is where Haggai comes in. Okay, they've been working on this rebuilding project. They're back from exile. It's been about 16 years or so from when they first came back to now. The temple lies in ruins. The people don't know what to do, and this is where God raises up Haggai. Okay, y'all stay with me. So let's, let's get into it. So, so verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, so real quick, you're just giving us stuff. There's not a ton to like exegete there, but there is interesting. If you look at those names, Zerubbabel and Joshua, if you trace their lineage, what's really fascinating, remember they came back and they don't feel like they have anything, but Zerubbabel is actually a descendant from David's line, from King David's line. And Joshua is a descendant from the high priest Aaron for Moses' day. So all of a sudden you're like, we're kind of a ragtag group and we don't know what to do. But it's like, wait a second, we have someone from a kingly lineage and we have someone from a priestly lineage. Okay, though they feel like they have nothing, maybe things are looking up. Next verse, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, and he said, Is it a time for you then to yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? There's still some issues, okay? Your priorities are off. They started putting their time instead of the temple into their own homes, into their own lives, making them great, putting everything they could into them while the temple is completely neglected. And of course, no doubt the people have had frustrations. They were exiled for over 70 years, the feelings of abandonment by their God that they're back now, but everything seems harder than it should be. So their conclusion is, let's get our affairs in order, let's get our lives right, and then we'll give our attention to God. They say it's not yet time. Haggai continues, verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Right? What's Haggai saying? You're providing for yourselves, but it is fruitless and unsatisfying. And even if you can make a profit, the money is burning a hole in your pocket. 
Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. They say it's not yet time. The Lord says now is the time. And we're going to do it right because here is what has been happening. Verse 9, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors." Instead of trying harder and building more for yourself, stop what you're doing. Stop neglecting your God and build a house for his presence. I, and he says, I, I, this, you cannot, you have been compromising in this area and it no longer can persist. In fact, he says, I'm going to take the things away that you are comfortable enough to then compromise and allow my temple to be in ruins. Right? I'm intervening to force your hand to this good work. So verse 12, Then Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. This is huge. Guys, we've been in Minor Prophets for a couple weeks now, and if you, if you know in the scriptures, you know that a lot of the issues that, that the people of God have is that they do not fear God. They do what they think is right in their own eyes, not what God says is right. right? This has been a huge issue that's been going on. The problem is God is faithful. right? He will never leave them nor forsake them. But the state of their life, the, the blessings that they are missing out on is such a sad waste. Right? The God of the universe wants relationship and to lavishly bless his people like a good father to his children, and yet his children say, I can do it better on my own. But now, it's actually encouraging to read this response. Typically, we read a response of arrogance. Typically, it's, I'm going to turn back to my idols, right? But read this response. The humbled people who are returning to rebuild now listen, obey, and fear the Lord. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Think how encouraging that would be. They're so frustrated. They feel alone. They feel abandoned, right? For so long, they've been in exile and struggled with this identity crisis. Who are we? I want to be connected to us again. And now to hear these words after so long, I am with you. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't left you. I am with you. This stirs up in them. Read this, verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month and the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So they do it. The work begins, and it's going, and they've got gusto, right? So one month later, this is chapter two now, Haggai comes back to check on their progress. 
Chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua the high priest and to all the remnant of the people and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So remember, some of them that were there right now in Haggai have seen the former temple before Nebuchadnezzar came, before he exiled all the people. They saw the beautiful temple. And if you go read its description when Solomon built it, it is unreal and unlike anything else. It's insanely extravagant and expensive. The materials are from specific places. So there's no way these relatively poor, just back from, from exile Israelites could bring it back to its further former glory. And this discouragement was for sure felt. But Haggai was kind of the first one to speak it out loud, right? And just pause. We kind of, some of us can maybe identify with this a little bit, those feelings of like, man, it's just not as good as it used to be, right? When you, when you think like, just in our church experience real quick, just think like, I've never been more encouraged than that that one mission trip I took, and now I just have felt kind of lackluster, right? Or the church, even this isn't what it used to be in my day. Or I remember when we used to have those projectors, remember with the slides that you'd slap on there, and I'd always laugh when they were like upside down and backwards because the words would be messed up, right? Or I remember like when, when you would just want to sit alone in the back of church sitting in your own pew. Uh, that's a church joke. Sorry. Never mind. I just had to do it. I'm so sorry. I apologize. Right? There's the glory days in all aspects of life. Right? I, I, recently, I heard a psychologist say that when people talk about the glory days, when they're trying to relive, the, the mindset is because it's the last time that they felt like they were a part of something bigger than themselves that that was that time of like, man, when I was on the football team or I was whatever the thing could be, like that was a time when they felt the most alive and then from there. So we can kind of like, we know just whatever it is for you, like we kind of can identify with this thing where these, these probably teenagers at the time were then sent into exile. We're in exile this whole time. We're finally released to come back as, as older people and to show up and to be like, this is nothing. This is ruins. Even if we could rebuild it, we have nothing. The glory days are over. But Haggai encourages, verse 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. Like a brilliant connection right here. The exile generation is being reminded of the desert generation, right? The covenant I bound myself to you with, where I promised to be your God forever, way back in the Exodus, has not changed. You have had to learn the hard way that I am faithful and you often are not but my spirit remains, so fear not. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, 
I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The point of all that is to say the future is the Lord's. This generation is worried about the past and that they won't match up to how good it was in the glory days. But God is saying something different. Stop the comparison game. I am the greatest commodity you have. I am going to act and pour out my blessing upon you. Material wealth and silver or gold, it's mine to give. And furthermore, and I would argue probably more importantly, I will give you rain for your crops and fertile ground is mine to replenish and to pour out. This uh, shaking language is really striking too. This would also point them back again as they're being reminded of this Exodus time, this desert generation when God was among his people. This is what happened. Let me read it for you. Mount Sinai so long ago. This is Exodus 19:16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. Just this massive shaking. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This was the presence of God, the shaking, this trembling, the magnitude of the awesomeness of God's presence. And the provision, the whole reminder isn't so much, it is a little bit to have that that fearful awe of God, but it's also to remember the God of that generation provided for them. Over and over and over again, he provided everything and they could put their trust in him because they had nothing. At that time, they had the clothes on their back and the God on the mountain. That's all they had and God still provided. And this is where the Lord is bringing this lowly and humbled people back to and showing them they've been focusing on the wrong things. See, there's this recurring, recurring issue humans have had since the existence of time. It's that we can't help expect blessings for our good works. We can't help it, right? We can't help but think, okay, God, if we trust in you to provide, we move away from working on our homes and focus just on the temple, then we'll be happy and have everything we need, right? And because of the works of our hands, you will bless us. And that sounds great, right? That sounds awesome. But unfortunately, it's just not quite correct. This leads to that frustrating heart state where God kind of becomes this cosmic vending machine of blessing that if you just do the right things and press the right buttons, you'll get a reward. But we're learning from all these minor prophets and all over the scriptures that God doesn't just want that. He desires hearts. If you remember Ezekiel 36, God desires to restore a people so greatly that he said through this prophet, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to make you new. That is what I want. Not all this just good stuff. So now the Lord through Haggai is making this transition to talk about now their personal holiness in this project. 
It's not just about if you put your, if you, if, well, if you put your shovel down in your house and you take it back up and just work on the temple, you'll be fine. It's like, no, I want your heart. So listen to this, verse 11. Thus says the Lord of, of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Okay, so Haggai is kind of using a little bit of a rhetorical uh, uh, questions and just like, so essentially, is holiness contagious? Can one thing that is made holy transfer its holiness to something else not necessarily holy? If consecrated holy bread touches regular bread, does the regular bread become holy? Okay, the priests answer and say no. Okay, they know, which is, that is the correct answer, right? It would just kind of be. But then Haggai turns it and he says, okay, so then if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, does it, those things become unclean? Okay, same thing, but the opposite. The priests answer and say, yes, it does become unclean. So the conclusion here is that holiness is not contagious, right? It's not contagious by proximity, but sin is. Uncleanliness, which always represents sin in the Old Testament, is. Then Haggai turns it on him. He pulls, it, he pulls a Jesus move, right? Haggai answered and says, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. Gotcha, right? Haggai's like, oh, you just answered it. You just said it. This is such a Jesus move, right? He does this all, Jesus did this all the time with the religious leaders. He would ask them about the law, they'd say it, and then he would turn it and say like, but that's the heart of God was always meant to change you, right? If you go back and remember in Hosea, God through Hosea said, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, the people were so preoccupied with their own lives, rebuilding and working on their homes, putting all their resources towards their own ways of living while the temple of the Lord laid in ruin, showing the priorities of their heart. They now think if they work on the Lord's temple, then what they have to offer will then by proximity be made holy and will be blessed. But it's contrary to just how they answered those questions, right? Their hearts are not aligned in total surrender and obedience to God. They want to serve him. They know he is their God, but their priorities are still self and then religious duty. And this is sometimes affectionately called the amulet mentality, right? Some like a thing that can augment and better your life here on earth. So God becomes this kind of amulet thing to have, right? The crazy thing is these people, of all people, should know better. Remember, these are exiles from Judah. What was in the very center of their main city? Like the temple, right, of God's presence. They lived in with God's presence being right in the center. But in fact, obviously, this did not make them a holy people due to their exile. See, holy things and holy actions don't make a person holy, only a holy God can make a holy people. Verse 15 says, Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? 
right? Haggai says, just take a second to ask, how's it been working out for you? How's living for yourselves actually going? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. You harvested a lot, but it was disappointing return, disappointing crops, not having as much as you thought, finding food that you're excited about, yet it was ruined because I did that, and yet you did not turn to me. Verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? This is like an ancient way of saying, like, does a bear poo in the woods? <laughs> like, obviously, yes, <laughs> you know? So, but it's the op opposite, right? Is seed yet in the barn? Like, no, you have nothing. It's not working for you. He says, indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. It's looking real bleak from a human perspective, but here's the encouragement. The Lord says, but from this day on, I will bless you. I will be the blessing you are looking for in other things. I will provide where you have found no provision. I will grow and give plenty where there has been lacking. I am the God you have been searching for. This is, should be a great encouragement to the people, but the Lord's not done. A second word comes to Haggai, verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This last final oracle of Haggai to Zerubbabel, who as we mentioned before is this lineage of David, but now resides over the people as a governor. Here the Lord is including Zerubbabel in his promise to bless the people by also giving him authority to lead the people in this rebuilding effort. They have a leader now. The signet ring has long been a sign of authority for kings or rulers to kind of seal their decrees and show their, you know, quote, stamp of approval. And here the Lord is choosing Zerubbabel to be like his stamp of approval for the people, resuming this messianic line that was disrupted by the exile and all the wicked leaders before. And so Haggai's concluding, he kind of has this twofold encouragement for the people. He says, first, his idea of do not hold fast to the perishable things of life. What does he say? He says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. Everything will be shaken and tested for its quality, both heaven and earth, both material goods and positions of authority and shaken by God's standards for its eternal quality. What did the Israelites have that would matter to eternity if not their hearts? Their stuff is nothing, right? This is Haggai's final word to the people, to not focus on themselves, right, but rather focus on the Lord and how their life can be used in this holy work because what he says is you need to hold fast to the unshakable kingdom of God. 
What do you say in verse 22? I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. Right? Haggai, obviously, he cannot tell the future. Otherwise, he'd say, I'm going to overthrow all the flying cars and robots, right? But what does he say? He understands the past, this important motif in the scriptures of what happened in the Exodus with Pharaoh and his riders and the chariot. And when the people were scared and they passed through the Red Sea and they were on the other side, and Pharaoh and his chariots with all their might and all their power and all their wealth and their massive uh, uh, war horses were then swallowed up by the waters. He says, don't forget, where almighty Egypt and its gods were utterly cast down and destroyed, you were on the other side, unshakable. What you have inherited in this kingdom of God will not perish. And this is the same kingdom that we're supposed to be reading about that we have today. Here through Haggai, the Lord is establishing his perfect rule in the heavens and now establishing that earth through his people, rebuilding the temple and establishing Zerubbabel on earth as his representative. In a prophetic time when God himself would come in the flesh, this is all precursor to that, to reign and to rule and bring the heavens and earth together in unity. And that is the minor prophet of Haggai. Next week, we're going to get into Zechariah, which is our last one of the series, where he continues in this rebuilding effort. But it's so important for us to pause and hear this message today. Do we not struggle with the same aspects of our faith? Of our faith? Do you ever find yourself thinking, well, I've done good things, and I've prayed twice a day, and I only yelled at my kids once, and I said, golly, that smarts when I stubbed my toe. So by association of better things, I'm a better person. It's human, right? We can't help it. But the reminder today is that being a good person is not exact same as being in step with the holiness of God. Again, only a God, holy God can make a holy people, right? Something has to change from the inside out, right? Our charge is to focus our attention and action, aka worship, on God and allow him to guide our lives, making his love and grace flow through us to others. It's important in the story to realize the centrality of the temple. Throughout the scriptures, the temple has always been central in the city of God's people for a reason, right? So that it stays central, right? The people could physically see it when they left their home. There was the temple, no matter where they were at in the city. But just like we would say now that our heart and our body and our souls are central to who we are, that is what God wants to enter into. We can focus on our bodies and everything around just like the Israelite people of Haggai's day only focused on their own homes and focusing on their lives while neglecting the central temple, right? But here's what the Apostle Paul in the New Testament unlocks for us because of Christ's work. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The reverse, the beauty of what has happened now post the cross is that God has actually made us central for his presence, right? So we then keep him central in our worship. So then it's his holiness that then is the overflow and outpouring of everything that we affect in our life. And something incredible happens. 
We don't just have to go to the temple and worship his presence. For those who have confessed Jesus as Lord, he has given his spirit. And what Paul described is what has happened. God's spirit dwells in you. Right? These are the roots now and the foundation. This is what the people of God grow from. Because we don't just take these thoughts and theology and then we build his kingdom here. He is building his kingdom through his surrendered people. Right? And unlike what we could build on our own, what he builds is unshakable. So I get it. Some of us may be here and may feel kind of like the Israelites of old, where we feel a little bit abandoned, feel apathetic, right? Feel like God's just not here, just like the Israelites did. We can identify feeling like we've kind of, we feel like we've been in an exile, kind of beaten up. Everything has been harder than it should have been, and it's discouraging, right? But this is the same God today as was in Haggai's time, who says to you, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. What we have inherited is a forever good father who's given us the keys to his unshakable kingdom. And the, the author of Hebrews, I just want to end with these incredible words, quotes Haggai in this, as you'll see, and then what we have inherited. Hebrews 12 See that you do not refuse him who's speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order the things that cannot be shaken may remain, what really matters. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And that should, just like the words of the Haggai stirred up the people, Stir, it should stir us up. That's incredible, right? And all of this is because Jesus is the king of that unshakable kingdom. And that is when we go to respond today. That's why we sing praises to Jesus. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. It's unshakable. It's incredible, this consuming fire. That's why we give of our earthly riches to a community to then bless the community. And that is why, of course, we go to the tables and we receive communion, right? We remember this is all because of Christ's body that was broken for us, Christ's blood that was spilt out for us, so that when we take this little cracker and this juice, but we remember in this moment that there is so much grace from our King of Jesus that lavishes upon us and says, I am the King of this kingdom, and I'm here in your midst, fear not. So let's pray and let's worship our King today. Will you pray with me?